Good morning. My name is Chris Knox. I'm with Farm 127, and my family and I have been here at New City. I'm stalling until I find my scripture. Uh, for about five and a half years. So uh, join me with the reading of God's word. This comes from Romans chapter 4. Abraham was, was humanly speaking, the founder of, the Jew, of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had, been, had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work their work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, that uh, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is the blessing only for the Jews, or is it for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father for those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Clearly God promise, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his, on his obedience to God's law, but on the right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary, and the promise is pointless. But the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to, not, is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe, that is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in, in the God who brings the dead back to life, who created all, who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there is no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even, even though at 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it was it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. This is the word of God for you today. You can be seated. Thanks, Chris. Good morning, church family. Hey, that was pretty good. 
Um, it's great to be with you all this morning. Um, we are in an interesting part of the year, aren't we? Um, the time right before the holidays. I don't know how your life is going. Um, mine's like winding up, getting more and more hectic and, and chaotic. Um, and uh, I don't know if you're, you're feeling that in your life now, like the pace is just increasing and you're, you're looking forward to, to stopping soon and, and getting some rest. Um, but as we're in this space in uh, this time of year, um, I'm excited to continue our journey through the book of Romans. And um, I wanted to start by um, just telling a little story uh, of something that happened this week at my house. I had a group of people over, um, and there was about 10 of us, and we had dinner, and then we were in my living room, and uh, there was a moment where I was supposed to kind of give like a little little talk, a little devotional time, and uh, I have a little uh, toy poodle. He's actually overweight. He's supposed to be, I think, seven or eight pounds. I think he's 15 or 16 pounds. He looks like he ate another toy poodle at some point along the way, and uh, Anyway, so his name's Bulky, B-O-K-K-I-E, which means like it's, it's the diminutive of the Springbok, which is the, uh, the rugby mascot in South Africa, um, which we have Reg in the back doing slides from South Africa. So there he is, Reg. Um, if you don't know about the people in the back, like there's a lot of people that pull off this thing uh, on Sunday morning, but uh, Reg is part of the regular crew and is, is from South Africa. But anyway, my, my dog is named after this South African rugby mascot because we lived there for, for six years, and he's kind of a character. And so I have this group of people. I'm at this moment where I'm like finally ready to give my like little talk, and it's getting serious, and I open my Bible, and then Bulky decides that it's time to ring the bell. We have this bell on our front door, and he jumps on it and rings it when it's time to go outside, but he's gotten in a bad habit lately of, of just starting to ring it at inopportune times when he wants attention. He just like, he doesn't actually have to go outside, but he's going to ring it, so he rings it, and I ignore it, and then he rings it again. I ignore it. Now the people in the room are starting to look at me like, should you get up and do something? And I think maybe I should. So I'm like, sorry, guys, I got to get up. And I go and I take him out. He walks out there and he just stands in the sidewalk for, for 30 seconds. And then he comes back in. Uh, and then we come back into the living room and I start the devotional again. And then Bulky runs away and he gets his food bowl this time. And he runs back into the middle of the living room and slams his food bowl down right in the middle of the circle. And now we're all looking at him and people are going like, who is this guy? Like, what's he about? And um, he keeps distracting and distracting and throwing his toy and all this stuff. And as I was thinking about this moment, you know, this is, this is life with my little dog. Um, but the truth is, he, he, Bulky is captured in his smaller story. Like, he is completely unaware of the bigger story unfolding around him. His whole life is about himself, right? And it's like, what do I want in this moment? I want attention. I want food. I want somebody to pay attention to me. I want to be at the center of activity because, like, my world is the world. And, like, in his walnut-sized brain, like, that is the reality of, of life, and I was thinking about that, and it's hilarious and funny and a little frustrating, but the truth is, is that we're not that much different, are we? Like, we are so prone to think that our world is the world, that our small story, that the things happening in our life, like the things that we desire and want, the things that we can see right in front of us, the things that worry us, like that that is the world, that the small story 
is the bigger story. And, you know, I wanted to introduce that kind of theme that we're so prone to our smaller stories because I think that's what Paul's talking about in, in the letter to, to the Romans this week. Is that you remember last week, and Lindsay read it and reminded us in chapter 3, like maybe the greatest verse in all of the scriptures, Romans 3, verse 21, but now God, right? But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. And, and basically, like in the, that verse and the verse that, that follows after that, God's like summarizing his big story. Because remember, God's been writing a big story from the beginning of time. This is so important that we, we capture this and remember this. Like every time we go to the scriptures, that we remember the big story that God was God always. And in the beginning, there he was, and he made the earth, and he made people, and he decided what was right and wrong. And he, and he was with the people in the garden, and it was amazing. And then we know the story that the people chose to rebel. They chose what? To, to make their small story. Like, look at this apple. Look at what I could have. It's right in front of me. And, and, and they make their small story the center of the story and forget this big story that God is writing. But, but God being God and God being love and God being faithful, like he, he's not going to leave people to their own devices. And so the whole of scriptures is the story about God chasing people and that he's going to make a way, that he's going to make a way to restore us to right relationship with himself. And that remember that he is the king of a kingdom that is broken into the world and that at the end of the story, he promises what? to make all things new, that he's going to come again and that he's going to reign and he's going to rule and he's going to invite us to, to reign with him, those that choose to follow him. And this is the big story. And so chapter 3, verse 21, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. And it has nothing to do with our, our small story. But, but we hear that, and, and what are we prone to? Like, we hear that massive story that, that God's made a way for us to be reconciled with himself, that he's making a way to make all the sad things in the world become untrue. But then we slink back into our smaller stories, don't we? We, we just forget. And in some ways, people have said that's a way you could summarize, like, all of the Bible, all of the stories of God's people is this, that we are forgetful people. We forget it. We hear that in chapter 3, and we're like, let's move on back into our real lives. And so Paul's writing this letter to the early church. And remember, there's, there's two main groups of people in this early church. There's the Jews uh, who had grown up with the stories of faith, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, and they have this beautiful lineage, uh, a history with God as his people. And then you have the Gentiles who come from the pagan culture, who don't have any of this background. And, and I think chapter four, he's really writing to the Jews in this little tiny house churches. Remember, there's five to seven of them in Rome at the time. And he's writing to the Jews, and he's reminding them, hey, be careful that, that you don't just hear uh, the good news, but now God, this big story, but then slink back into your smaller stories. And, and for the Jews and Romans, the small story is a story that we are God's people and, and that it's really about adhering to Jewish law, 
And it's really about behaving correctly, and that's what gives us favor with God. And so therefore, in chapter 4, Paul begins with the name of a person, Abraham. And and this is why he begins with Abraham, because he's going to go back to the very beginning of Jewish history, to the beginning of their faith, and he's going to retell the story of Abraham, but this time with Jesus in view, this time with the lens of the bigger story in view. But the temptation is there that they just remember the small story that they had grown up in, that it's really about religion, that it's really just about being the chosen people, and they forget the story of Jesus. So I want to go back to the story of Abraham. If you don't know it, it's a fascinating story. Uh, Abraham was actually a pagan man. Uh, He was from a a town in in modern-day Iraq, in southern Iraq, called Ur. Um, And and Abraham, at a a very old age, he's an old man. In the last years of his life, he hears God's voice, and and God promises to make him into the father of many nations. And there's this moment where uh, God says, Abraham, look up into the sky. And, And if you've ever been outside and you've looked at the stars in the sky, I live out in Weddington, area. There's not a lot of street lights. That's one of the things I love about living out a little bit is that like when it's really dark, it's really dark and you can look up and you just see the expansiveness of the sky and the stars. And so whenever I do that, I think about Abraham and God takes him out there as an old man. And, and keep in mind, he's not just an old man. He's an old man with no children. And he says, look up at the sky, and you see all of them, and you can't even count all the stars, and yet your descendants are going to be more than all the stars in the heavens. And then he promises that he's going to bless all of the earth through the, de- through the descendants of Abraham. But we're told in the story of Abraham that uh, even though he has this amazing experience where he hears the voice of God, where he hears this promise of God that speaks into the inmost desire of his smaller story, that Abraham forgets God too. And Abraham, as he begins this journey of following God, he, he reaches a point where he thinks, maybe God's forgotten about me. Maybe God had a different plan. Maybe actually it is up to me. And and then there's stories about the way that Abraham strays away from the one big true story, uh, that there's a moment as he leaves the city of Ur, as he's going to the place that God tells him to go, that uh, he encounters a king and he feels threatened by the king. And so he lies and he says that his wife, Sarah, is actually his sister. And he agrees for the king to marry his sister just to get out of trouble. And so he slinks back into his smaller story. At another point, uh, he, he, you know, he's still not had a son. He's waiting on God to fulfill this promise. And he, he slinks back into his smaller story and he sleeps with his servant, Hagar. And Hagar bears a son and, and Abraham actually for a moment believes maybe this is the child of promise. Maybe this is the way that God is gonna fulfill what he said that he was gonna do. But God keeps drawing him back and reminding him that Abraham I told you I'm writing a bigger story, and it's not about your small story. And I want to read from Genesis chapter 15, because there's a beautiful passage. I don't know if you've heard it before, um, but it's tied to our passage today, and it's actually a foreshadowing of 
what Jesus is going to do. And this is Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. We're going to come back to that because that's in our passage for today. And then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. What's he doing? He's reminding Abram that he's writing a bigger story. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? You think about this for a minute. God shows up and is speaking to you in an audible voice. And, and, and you, you believe him enough to leave everything behind in the last lap of your life. Can you imagine being almost 100 years old and you've grown up in one city in one place and you've got a house and you've got all these possessions and you've got social networks and you've got security and, and you hear God's voice clearly enough to say leave and you obey it and you leave everything behind. And how crazy would that be for us to do that today? And yet that's what happened to Abram. And still, after he does that, he questions, how can I be sure? How can I be sure, God? But the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And so Abram presented all these to him and killed them. And then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. And some vultures swooped in down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. A visual, visceral picture. Imagine this scene. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for their sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. And after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. And so the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, the Kinzanites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephamites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. Why am I reading you this passage? It seems like a strange image, but it's a beautiful image. So in Abram's time, the way that two kings would make a treaty with one another, when, when two kings would come together and they would make a promise that they were going to make a deal and that they would have to trust each other to hold up their end of the bargain, they would actually do this ceremony where they would get animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay them out. And then both kings would walk through the middle of the pieces and it was a visual sign of the promise they were making to each other. And this is what they were saying. They were saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I become like these animals split in half. And so in this moment, it's provocative because remember Abram's question, how can I be sure? And there's so much loaded in his question. He's saying, really what he's saying is, how can I be sure that you are God? How can I be sure that you will do what you're promising to do? 
How can I be sure that your big story is enough to make sense of my smaller story? And so God says, you want to know how? Let's make a treaty. Let's make a covenant. Do the thing that kings do. But here's the thing. He lays out all the pieces, and then what happens to Abram? God puts him to sleep. And then this burning pot passes through the pieces, and Abram sees it. The burning pot in in the Hebrew scriptures represented the, the presence and the holiness of the Almighty God. And so in this image, it's amazing. God is promising to Abram. He's saying, you can trust me. Why? Because if I don't fulfill all of this covenant, you're asleep. And so I'm not even inviting you in to hold up your end of the bargain because I know that you won't. I'm going to fulfill your part and my part. And if I don't do it, may I become like these animals split in half. And I told you a few minutes ago that it's a foreshadowing moment right at the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel is a foreshadowing moment in the beautiful grand story of God, of Jesus, and what he's going to do. And so you see, all along the way, from the very first moment that God encounters Abram in his small story, God's promising, it's not going to be up to you. It's not going to be about what you can do in your goodness, in your religion, in your faithfulness, because you're not going to be able to do it, but I'm going to promise to do it. In that visceral image of blood spilled, of flesh wounded, is an image of the cross that is to come. And that takes us back into Romans 3, 21. But now God has shown us a way. And so he's speaking to the Jews who, again, are tempted to their smaller story, tempted to go back into their religion, tempted to, just like Abram, to go back under their own power and make things their own way. And he's saying, let's go back to the original story of your faith because I don't think you're remembering it correctly. And he says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And here, Paul's teaching them such an important lesson that I want to make sure we catch this morning. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, that word counted him, a different translation says credited him. And and so here's what it means. It means that because Abraham believed God, and remember, it's not that he believed in God. We love to say that in our culture, don't we? Believe, I believe in God, but no, it's not enough to believe in God. The scriptures say even the demons believe in God, that he exists, but do you believe God, that God is who he says he is, that he did what he says he's going to do, and it says that Abraham did believe God, and in that moment, what God did is he made that belief, that, that, that weak human belief, that, that he made it as the same as being righteous, Now, what does this word righteous mean? It means to be in right relationship with God, and to be in right relationship with God means that you're perfect, that you're without sin, that you're without error. And this is an amazing statement that he's reminding the Jews that, remember, Abraham believed God, and God made his weak belief count the same as him being perfect because of his faith. And so 
Paul is reminding the Jews of the founder of the Jewish nation that uh, he wasn't a great man of God. He wasn't the hero of the story. And, and we learn this, don't we, in Sunday school classes, if you've been hanging around the church for a while, and, and you learn and teach kids about Abraham, what's the song say? You know, Father Abraham had many sons. I won't keep singing it because I'm not a good singer and I'll mess it up. But we teach, I think sometimes wrongly, that there's heroes of the faith other than Jesus. And the truth is that we should teach the story of Abraham as Paul is teaching the story of Abraham here. And it should go something like this, that once there was a sinner named Abraham who God wrote a beautiful, bigger story through his life, but not because he was good, but just because God chose to do it. Well, the story also briefly mentions in chapter four, David, verse six, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who were declared righteous without working for it. Just to highlight on David for a minute, because he's reminding Jews of people they've idolized and made heroes of their faith, but who is David? I'm not going to read the story, but we know that King David was far from a holy man. We know that he was a murderer. We know that he was an adulterer, and he was a very sinful man, and yet God said, this man David has my heart because he had the same faith that Abraham has and that he understood, verses seven and eight, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. And so he's unpacking what it means in chapter three, verse 21, but now God has shown us a way. What does that way look like? Remember, the way is the same as it's been since the very beginning of the story of our people with Abraham, with David. All these people, they weren't heroes. They were broken and weak and sinful people that God used to speak his larger story through them. So the question for us this morning is, what does it look like when we fall back into believing our smaller stories instead of God's bigger story. And I want to pull out, and we're not going to go through the entire passage. It's too long. If you're interested in continuing to study chapter four, um, get a study Bible. Get in there this week. Email me if you have questions. Call me if you want to chat. I'd love to chat more this morning. We're just kind of giving the headlines. But I want to give you some really practical headlines because the truth is we're not different than the Jews in the early church in Rome is that we have the same tendency to fall back into our smaller stories instead of believing God's bigger story. And I want to name some of the ways that Paul describes that the Jews did that, but the ways that we do that too. So number one, he talks about work in verses four and five. He says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. And so in our culture, when we say the word work, what do we think about we think about we are at the center of our story, that, that we are the ones that go to work, that we take on a job, that we take on responsibility, and, and then we have a transaction with an employer, and we say, you know, I'm going to give you some of my time or some of my talent, and I'm going to do this value exchange, and I'm going to trade it for money. And so I'm going to work for money, and I'm going to earn my wage. And it's, so it's something that we earn and, and we see that this is the way that the world works all around us, isn't it? I mean, this is just our culture. 
is, is that our work equals wages. And so because that's the way that our world works, the first way that we're tempted to slink back into our smaller stories and we forget God's bigger story is that when it comes to our relationship with God, we also believe that we can earn our way into God's favor. And how could we not be tempted to slink, to crawl back into that? Because in all of our life, that's just the way the world works. And we operate that way in relationships too, don't we? I know I do, that I'm tempted to do that in my marriage. I'm tempted to do that with my friendships, that I make it transactional, that if you would just do this thing for me, or if I did this thing for you, now you owe me. And we treat marriage that way, and we treat friendships that way, that like it's a battle for 50-50, and, and, you know, if I give my part, then you should give your part and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. But did you know that's not how relationships work? Because let me, if, raise your hand if 50-50 is working for you. I don't think it is. The way it works is 100-100. Actually, with God, the way it works is 100-0. Is that God gives 100, we bring Nothing. But Paul reminds the Jews that the way the world works in relationships is not the way that God works in relationship. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So we see that it's not us working to be good enough. It's not us doing things You know, the way that we like to think of our relationship with God is the same way that we think of relationships everywhere else, and it's two letters, D-O, do, that we do things, that we do things, and that's how we advance relationally, but the way that God spells success in relationship with him is four letters, D-O-N-E, done, Jesus, when he died on the cross, said, it is finished, that he's already done the work. And so Paul is reminding us that when it comes to our relationship with God, we must reject our smaller story and our temptation to believe that we can work for our righteousness, but instead people are accounted as righteous. Remember that word credited, that God takes our meager offering of faith and he says, because I'm good, I'm going to count that as the same as you being perfect. And I'm going to restore you in right relationship to myself because of the finished work of Jesus. The second way that we're tempted to go back into our smaller stories is unpacked in verses 9 through 12. And and I'm not going to go through all of this. Uh, It has a lot to do with circumcision, which we're definitely not going to go into um, during this time this morning. But here's the deal that we could summarize that Uh, there's this belief that it's our religious activity that earns us favor with God. It's our belief that our religious activity that earns us favor with God. And so he's talking to the Jews and he's talking about all the ceremonial rites and he's talking about the, the ritual of circumcision and this thing and this pain that you would do to mark yourself as different and that they deeply believe that if you do this thing, you would mark yourself in a certain way, then God would owe you and that he would have to count that 
as righteousness, but Paul says, no, that's not right. It's never our religiosity. And so for us, it's not necessarily those sorts of rituals, but we have our own rituals, don't we? We have, as Christians, our own ways of bringing our religiosity. We, we think, well, you know, if I could just, like, come to church enough, if I could just participate in enough Bible study, if I could just do enough ministry, if I could just serve enough, and we maybe not verbalize those things, but I know that some of you think them, and it's an incredible burden in your life. I was talking to a young mom uh, not too long ago, and we were chatting about engagement with the church, and she was apologizing to me for not serving more in the church, and I said, well, what do you have going on in your life? And she had little kids and, and a husband with a busy job, and I said, what are you talking about? Like, God doesn't need you to do more to earn his favor. He already loves you. You don't have to do anything to earn significance and favor with God. All you have to do is believe in faith, trusting that God is who he says he is. So we have to reject the temptation that our religious activity earns us favor. Finally, we believe, as the Jews believe, that it's our level of goodness doing what is right and not what is wrong that earns us favor with God. And this was deeply embedded into the Jewish faith. Uh, it was the law of Moses. You hear in this passage, if you go back and read it, there's a ton of conversation about law, about following the law, because there was a belief that if you followed the law, then you would be declared righteous. And you remember Jesus, when he met the rich young ruler, there's this interchange, and a rich young ruler who was, uh, you know, had grown up as a Jew, uh, had grown up in a home following the Mosaic law, he, he came to Jesus and he said, you know, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, I've, I've obeyed all the laws. I follow them perfectly. I do all the rituals. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, go and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. And that's what it'll take. And it's, the passage tells us the man left. Because you see, the truth was he wasn't following God's law, that he had broken the second commandment not to have idols of any kind, that he had put something before God and that was his wealth. And I just wanted to read for a minute, because I think this is also deep in our culture, is that more than the rest, more than believing in religious activity, more than believing in work, I think in our culture, there's this deep lie in the smaller context of our smaller stories that we believe that our level of goodness will earn us favor with God. And this is deep in our culture. And you, you read it and you see it in all the cultural narratives that if we can just do enough moral things, but guess who gets to choose the morals in our culture, deciding who's right and, and wrong? It's us, not God. But you see, the scriptures teach us that part of what it means to be God is he gets to choose what is right and wrong. And he does that in the Ten Commandments. And I just want to read them. I just want to summarize them for a minute because I think there's some of us in this room who are tempted to think that it's our goodness that earns us favor with God. And we go, I mean, I'm pretty good. Or we compare ourselves, or I'm, I'm better than most people. And there's a lot of jokes about that of like, you know, I hope my good outweighs the bad. And when I get to those pearly gates, you know, I hope they'll let me in, that kind of thing. But let's read the Ten Commandments. What does he say? He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt. First, first command, no other gods before me. 
Well, I've broken that one, and so have all of you. We all have little g gods that we put in the place of God. Number two, don't make an idol uh, of, in, of image or of any kind. Well, we may not worship little idols, but here's what I do and we do, is that we decide what God should look like in our life. And we choose that, and, and in doing that, we have all kinds of idols in our life that we must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I, we do that. We, you must observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We're going to come back to that here at the end. But I break that all the time. Do you rest? Do you observe rest in your life? Or do you work frantically hoping that it's your activity that will earn you favor, that will earn you a good life? Honor your father and mother. Broken that one. Okay, finally we get to some that maybe we get a pass on. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. But you remember what Jesus says? He says that... If you've hated and thought violent thoughts about another person, that in your heart you've committed murder, that you've looked at another person with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And so we've broken those as well. You must not steal. And maybe we haven't like committed shoplifting, but we've stolen ideas. We've stolen credit where credit was due to someone else. You must not lie. We've all lied. We must not covet or be envious. We're all envious and covetous people. What's my point going through all this? Is that we've all, every single day, failed to live up to God's standard of goodness. And so we have to reject our smaller stories and the lie of our culture that is our goodness that can give us favor with God. And so Paul teaches us that the way to God is through a trusting faith. We go back to chapter 3, verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Here's what I want you to remember, is that the way to God is, is a trusting faith. It's not just kind of this benign belief in a God out there somewhere but it's that God is who he says he is. And as Christians, who do we say that God is? Jesus. So we believe that Jesus is God, that we believe that what we read in the scriptures about what God looked like when he showed up and what he taught and the way that he interacted and the things that he instructed, that we believe this is who God is. And second and most importantly, a trusting faith means that we believe that God has done what he says that he has done. What has he said that he's done? He said that he entered into the world and that he went to the cross and that he fulfilled that promise to Abram that he would be the one to do it, that he would fulfill all the covenants and the promises of the Old Testament and the law and the prophets, that he would be the only true human and that he would die in our place that if we would just look at him and acknowledge him as the Lord, that we would have life and have life to the full. I don't know where you are uh, in your faith right now. I would imagine there's basically two groups of people in the room, generally speaking. There's some of you who have never trusted Jesus as your savior. You've never acknowledged that Jesus is God. You've never confessed that you know, you don't have what it takes 
to earn favor with God, and maybe you're still trying. And, and to you, I want to say that um, maybe this is your day. This is your day to acknowledge him as Lord. And here's the deal. When you do that, guess what? You start your real life. And you can lay down all your striving and all your trying because you can't be good enough. You can't follow all the rules enough. You can't earn it. You can't work your way into it. It is finished for you. And I want to invite you into the life that is life today. But secondly, I think there's a bigger group of people in the room today that you've already made a profession of faith. You've already said, I believe God. I believe that, Jesus, you are God. I believe that you did what you said you're gonna do and I have a moment in my life when I remember that, but here's the deal. But like all the rest of the people in scriptures and like me, you've forgotten it and you've slinked back into your smaller story and if you're honest, the way that you're living your life right now is you're living like God doesn't, exist, like he's not the king, like he doesn't have power, and you're working, and you're striving, and you're trying to make sense of your smaller story, and it's exhausting, and you're searching for significance, and you can't find it, and for you, I want to give you a, a spiritual practice to engage with as a practical way to come back, because remember, Paul says that we've been invited on the way We've been invited on a journey. It's a narrow way, but there's a way, there's a clear way ahead in our life with God. And, and as Christians, we are disciples, and at the root of being a disciple, that word is discipline, which is a, a form of obedience. And, and we're taught today by the Apostle Paul that it's not our obedience that gets us into right standing with God, but after we've got that right standing, after we are his beloved sons and daughters, what he does say is that it's through the work of obedience that we practice walking with Jesus, that we do have work to do. And, and I want to leave you with a challenge to observe the Sabbath as a way of starting. And why am I encouraging us to that today? But because in our world, we use this word today, work. We are so prone to find our identity and our worth in our work and our striving, that our significance is in what we're doing. And for some of you, that's you're a stay-at-home mom and that's your work. For some of you, that's as a caregiver. For some of you, that's with an employer. But, but you're, we're all at times trying to find significance in our work. And, and part of the reason that God lays out his law is because it's good for us. And we're called as Christians to practice the discipline of rest. And, and so I don't know where you are, you know, in the classic sense in the Hebrew faith, they, they would rest from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And, and what that would mean is to cease from advancing activities in your life, that, that I'm not gonna try to advance my life, I'm not gonna try to earn anything, I'm simply gonna stop doing, and I'm just gonna be, and I'm gonna spend time with God in relationship, and I'm going to spend time in joy with others in relationship, and I'm going to do things that are life-giving to me, but that don't advance my life in some way. And so that was the original kind of Hebrew way as Christians. Historically, we practiced that on Sunday as the day that we worship together, that then we enter into a day of rest. But the practicality is that in modern life, you may not be able to do that. Some of you have sports things on Sundays. You're like, I got stuff on Saturdays, Gabe. When am I going to rest? I can't take a full day. It's okay because God is a God of grace and love and mercy. But here's my challenge to you. Pick a time. For you, that might be a Tuesday for a few hours. 
For some of you moms that have little kids, that might be an hour. That might be 15 minutes that you're just like, I'm going to cease for that 15 minutes. Whatever you can do, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us as a community to begin living out what we believe. If we believe that God is who he is, that he is the king, and we believe that he's done what he said he did, that he finished the work, that we are his beloved sons and daughters before we do a thing, then we can rest in him. And so I'm challenging myself and challenging you, pursue Sabbath in this coming week. Pick a time, pick a few activities. If you're married, have a conversation with your spouse about that. And I'm gonna keep asking you about that. And I want you to keep asking me about that. And let's be a people of Jesus who don't find our identity in our work, but find our identity completely in him. To Christ be the glory. Amen.